We've been talking about experiencing God this year. And last week, I preached a sermon about experiencing God in doubt. And um, uh, today's sermon is really kind of a follow-up to that. So let me give you just a quick recap if you missed last week. I talked about how doubt, I don't think doubt is the opposite of faith. Uh, a lot of people seem to think that. I don't think so. I think it's only faith when you have doubt. Otherwise, you're sure of something. Faith is only faith that includes doubt. I think the Bible actually encourages doubt to be voiced, to be found in the church. Um, and, and so there's lots of Psalms, a whole book of Lamentations, about voicing our doubts and our questions. There are actually a lot of good questions about the faith. There's a lot of reasons, a lot of things I don't understand. I don't know about you. I don't understand a lot of this stuff. And um, I went to seminary. I probably should be the one, but sometimes there's just not always good answers. That's why it takes faith. The doubt is not a lack of experiencing God, but often, and this was true in my own life, doubt is how God helps us experience Him. Sometimes doubt is actually how we learn about God and how we grow in our faith. And today, I want to take that a step further to talk about experiencing God in what uh, is sometimes called deconstruction. If you've not heard that word, uh, it's kind of a buzzword. You, you probably will start hearing it. I'm going to explain it. Um, but uh, but have, you, have you heard that word? Is that familiar to you at all, deconstruction? People talk about deconstruction? But, but you probably have seen people that have done it. How many of you know people who used to be Christians and now are not Christians? Used to go to church, but now are not going to church. Okay. And it is, it's happening a ton in people my age and younger, but it, it doesn't seem to be stuck there. It seems like a lot of people that used to go to church aren't anymore. And, and, and for a lot of people, COVID was like, the, the like doing, not being able to go to church for six months. It was like, well, fine, I just won't go back. And we all know those people too. Um, so let's talk about this, this sort of trend that I see happening. I, I think there's a natural progression where people need to grow in their faith. Okay, Hebrews 6.1 says, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of the faith towards God. So, so he, the author of Hebrews says, there are these elementary doctrines, but you should be getting past those to maturity. There's a process that the author of Hebrews thinks you should take, where you start out as a baby. Paul, Paul says it this way, you start out with milk, but then you got to move on to meat. you got to keep growing. There's a maturing process that takes place. We all were raised in a church, or else you found faith later. But you all inherited some kind of faith, right? You were taught the faith. Whether you were taught as a kid, a lot of us were taught as kids. And you went to church, you didn't have a choice. And you had to sit there and you had to learn the stuff. You had to learn the stories, right? <clears throat> Maybe you came to faith later, but still you learned. You had to learn what it was to be a Christian. You had to learn what it was like to pray. How do we do so? Maybe you came from a tradition where we spoke in tongues. Maybe you came from a tradition where you didn't speak in tongues. Um, maybe you came from a tradition that was very judgmental and very rigid and very rule-oriented. Maybe you came from a church that was very like, emotional and happy and free-going, right? Um, but you inherited a faith. Some of it you were actually intentionally taught. Some of it you just sort of picked up along the way. Oh, we don't like those people. Oh, we don't believe that. Oh, I don't want to say that word around my church people. We don't use that word. Okay, some of it may be mean-spirited or judgmental or image-based. 
But at, at some point, you had inherited a faith. But there always comes a time in a person's life where you have to move on past the faith of your childhood. It's a really natural process. Two things have to take place. One is you have to make it your own. Okay, at some point, you got to decide, am I going to go to church because I want to go to church, or am I going to go to church because my mom told me I had to go to church? At some point, you don't have to do what your mom tells you to do. And so you got to make the faith your own faith. And at the same time, there comes a point where you have to sort of look at your, the faith of your childhood and say, well, okay, if I, it's going to be mine, do I want all of it? And what naturally happens is the church uh, and, the, and the Christian faith picks up things along the way, okay, like ticks or something, right? It kind of picks up all these other things. And, and so you get Jesus, but then you also get patriarchy, a very low view of women. Or, or you pick up, okay, okay, this is Jesus, but then you pick up a certain sort of racism that comes into the faith that you didn't even know was really a part of it or you didn't know was supposed to not be a part of it. Or anti-Semitism. Or, so there's all these things that as you mature, you have to sort of look at your faith and say, is it mine? And do I want it all? Maybe these pieces I don't want. Maybe these. And, and so this is the language some people use for this. You have construction, which is where you build your faith. And then you have deconstruction. You got to take it apart and see what's in there and decide whether you want to keep some things and, or get rid of some things. And then there's a natural part where you're supposed to reconstruct, where you like put it back together. You construct the faith of your childhood. You deconstruct it at some point. Everybody remember your 20s? Okay, you got to like take it apart. You got to see what's in there. And then you kind of reconstruct your faith. The early church had to do this, right? The disciples, they grew up Jewish. Well, do we eat kosher? Do we not eat kosher? Okay, they had to look at their faith of their childhood and say, okay, following Jesus, well, what does it mean to me? What does it mean moving forward? This is a really actually natural process. It helps in faith. It clears the faith of toxins. It brings us back to the Bible and Jesus. And I think there's a healthy way to deconstruct your faith, to take it apart. Um, although I don't like the word deconstruct. I'm not sure you have to totally take it apart. So I heard this scholar, Michael Bird, talk about, let's stop using the word deconstruction, which is really popular. Let's talk about decluttering our faith. I kind of like that better. Declutter, like just take apart the parts that I need to take apart, but I don't have to necessarily take apart the whole thing. But see, there's this movement, there's this trend right now where a lot of people are taking apart their faith completely. Okay, I know pastors, and there have been popular pastors on social media who have claimed, I have deconstructed, I am no longer a Christian. I no longer believe any of the stuff that I used to believe. There's a huge movement to, to help younger people, younger Christians, actually take apart their faith. You can find websites, people write books dedicated to doing exactly that, reading books by doubting, about doubting. And so you can actually see this trend of deconstruction. So now that I'm naming it, can you know, you know some people? And I know some of you that have kids and grandkids that you've watched do this, where their faith was their faith, and then when they got older, they decided, nope, it's not their faith anymore. And they didn't just deconstruct, they actually deconverted. And then there's this other trend where it's gotten really popular in social media and on other things to attack those people who have deconstructed, right? To like, to like lob, lob bombs at them and really critique those things. See, I'm sensitive to this because I know a lot of people, I have friends who went to seminary who were pastors who are now wouldn't even call themselves Christians anymore. 
This is a trend that's happening all over the place. And I, I want to tell you that there's like a root of it that's actually healthy. Like, a, like it's part of maturing that you make your faith your own, you take a look at it. Then there's a lot of it that's really unhealthy. That, um, and then a lot of the church's reaction to this has been really unhealthy. A lot of the church's reaction has been to push away and to be really judgmental. And if you know somebody who's gone through one of these things, that, like telling them that they're wrong is not helpful. Okay, have you tried this? You tried telling somebody they should be in church? They don't really like that. It doesn't really work very well. I'm sensitive to it, too, because it's part of my story. I'm a pastor's kid, a PK, we were called. And PKs are sort of famous, okay, or infamous, however you want to say it, for uh, pastor's kids, for being rebellious, and for losing, like, I know a lot of pastor's kids who are not Christians anymore. And um, the problem is, being a pastor's kid, a lot of times you're in a bubble. You're in, you're in a fishbowl for everybody to see, and you have to act a certain way, and you have to be a certain way. And I praise God that my parents weren't like that with me. They were actually pretty, pretty okay with me being me. I had to behave in church, but I was going to have to behave in church no matter what. It wasn't for everybody else. It was because you behaved in church. Now, the part of the challenge for me, and I think for a lot of people who are going through this deconstruction thing is, the church was part of the problem, not part of the answer. So in my case, my dad was a pastor who did a lot of work. He wasn't an interim, but he, he was basically an interim. He would go into churches that have had a, had a lot of conflict, where the church had previously spit, split the pastor before it had an affair and a bunch of people left. Like These are the kind of churches my dad went into. And um, he just loved underdogs. I don't know. Um, but, but he would go into these churches. And so I was around growing up really, really unhealthy churches and really, really unhealthy people in those churches. One of my earliest memories of church, I was in a church. Um, my dad was in Operation Desert Storm. He was a chaplain and he got called, you know, away. And so he was over in uh, Saudi Arabia. And uh, I remember, so this was 91. I would have been about nine years old. And in Sunday school, another kid that was younger than me, maybe seven, said, I hope Pastor Rimmer never comes back from the war. This is one of my earliest memories of church, everybody. I hope Pastor Rimmer never comes back from the war. Now, he's seven. Do you think he made that up? No, his parents were talking about that. That's where he learned that at seven. I know they were talking about that because while my dad was in Desert Storm, his parents were part of a group that were trying to get me and my, my mom and my sister kicked out of the manse. They wanted to kick us out of the manse while my dad was in Operation Desert Storm. Um, they even went so far as to call the army to try to get proof that my dad was actually in the army. They didn't believe it. They thought he was just running around, I guess. I don't know. Um, that, uh, that wouldn't be the only really unhealthy family we would deal with. I remember another family really trying to get my dad fired, and he would, uh, this was a different church, he would follow my dad, like get in his car and see where my dad was going to try to catch him in an affair or something, I don't know. And then when the head of the personnel committee backed my dad up, he started following that guy, okay, trying to get him fired from being a, a, a professional in town. He didn't even work for the church. These are some of my earliest memories of church. Um, and I, I went to Christian schools, and in Christian schools, I was also exposed to some really weird beliefs. I remember I was on a retreat one time, and um, I was about 14, and these people were talking about how anything, anything that's wrong is probably a demon, they said. 
any kind of thoughts you have that are lustful, they're just probably a demon. I was 14. I thought, man, I've got a lot of demons. Like, what is going on? <laughs> Everything was a demon. I remember another retreat where, where people tried to convince us that, that you had to speak in tongues. You weren't a Christian if you didn't actually speak in tongues. I remember being exposed to this stuff. I thought it was weird. Um, but, but there was sort of these subculture views of faith. So, so as I got older, I went to college. I, I like, when I went to college, I kind of took a break. Like, I didn't, like, uh, I didn't break up with God. Like, it wasn't like a total deconstruction. But I, it was kind of like, hey, God, let's just see other people for a little while. <laughs> right? And it, I needed some space. I needed some space to figure out what was my faith and what was not my faith. Okay? What was not what was what I believed and what wasn't my belief. Now, praise God, I was at Grove City College. Okay? So how rebellious you're gonna get. Okay? Uh, and so I, I was really protected there, and I was at a place where not only did I have to take Bible classes, but I was encouraged to think about these things. And they weren't afraid to talk about other perspectives. And so um, I was around a really good group of friends that we sort of wrestled with this stuff together. But it took me a while to be okay with faith. It took me a while to work through some of my doubts that I had. But I also come to realize that a lot of my doubts weren't really doubts about Jesus at all. What were they doubts about? Church. And so by the time I was in my junior, senior year of college, I was taking a bunch of religion classes, a bunch of Bible classes. I was really into it. But I, I still wasn't going to church. I did not want to have anything to do with church. I was definitely never going to be a pastor. Okay? No way. I didn't even want to go to church. I didn't have all my answers for my doubt figured out. And I still actually don't. But what I started doing, I started having a family. I started experiencing God in some new ways. And uh, I started saying, okay, well, if I'm going to experience God, i got to go somewhere where I can figure that stuff out. And I guess that place is probably the church. Um, and, and part of it was, I figured, the church is the bride of Christ, right? You ever had a friend where you didn't like their spouse? Like, how'd that go? Like, I like you, but I really don't like your wife. It just doesn't really go over well. As I found myself experiencing Jesus in new ways, I found that actually my doubts weren't that big a deal. I really wanted to explore what I was experiencing in Christ. But I also found, okay, actually church could be a place where you could do that. Now, I had trouble finding a church that could do that. And eventually, that all led to me thinking, I want to be a part of creating churches that can help people do that. Okay, that actually, a lot of my doubts and a lot of my sort of decluttering of faith and my journey that sort of took me in all these ways is partially how God helped me be a pastor. Did everybody see that? Like that well, actually, I thought it was a move away from God. God actually was like, nope, that's exactly the lane you're supposed to be in. And God kind of moved me through my doubts, through my questions, through my sort of journey, right into where He wanted me to be. And I was in some tough church situations, but we all know people who have been through it worse than I have. People who are actually abused by the church, where the church becomes part of the problem. So I'm very passionate about helping us be a church that can help people through some of these things. A place where we can actually have doubts and understand, hey, let's voice those. Sometimes you may come to church and you don't feel it. We sing How Great Thou Art and you think God is not real great. Well, good. Don't sink. 
sit and listen to all the other people that aren't where you are. There's something really healthy about that. There's something really healthy about being here in your doubts and in your questions. But I will tell you, if during my sort of off-ramp experience, off-roading, if you want to say it that way, like if somebody had gotten on my case about you should be in church, you should be, if somebody had shit all over me, I would not have been back where I was. Okay, so how we handle that is so important. So let me give you a couple hints. Let me give you just a couple hints to finish about, about thinking through this, this deconstruction that so many people are doing and so many of you know people that are doing. Number one, again, I think is actually a natural process. Sometimes people need their space. Sometimes people need their distance. Sometimes people need to get away. Um, and, and that's actually okay. We don't need to overreact to that, everybody. Jude 22 says, and have mercy on those who doubt. We need to be people who have mercy on those who doubt. We need to be gentle on those who have their own questions. You know, in the Bible, Jesus is actually really hard on the people that are sure of themselves. But, but, but the prostitute or the person who's been through all kinds of stuff in their life, Jesus has tremendous mercy and grace. It's actually the, the really religious people Jesus is hard on. We need to be people of that kind of grace and mercy. Sometimes people need their space. Sometimes people need counseling. Sometimes people need some distance. And, and we got to sort of let people have their journey. That said, there is good doubt and there's bad doubt. There's a good process where we work through our stuff and we actually reconstruct on the other side. And there's another process where somebody who's, who doesn't care about the person but cares about helping people become atheists gets in there. And these kind of websites are all over the internet. These videos are all over YouTube that are actually leading people astray. And we need to be careful of those. People are actually trying to deconvert Christians. And let me give you some advice for those of you who know someone close. You've got a grandkid or a son that has really kind of gone down this road, son or daughter, grandchild, whatever it is. If you have that person that has gone through this, I want to tell you, if, if you harp on them, it only pushes them further. If you harp on them, it only pushes them further. Okay? Um, I, I heard this. That there's a, a book by a guy named A.J. Swoboda called After Doubt. I think has been so helpful for me these last few weeks in thinking about some of these things. And I heard an interview with him where he had a great thing. You know when you go to the doctor, you have to sign like a consent to treatment form? Does everybody know what I'm talking about? Because you have to do it like every time. Yes, I consent. I know this could be problematic, but I actually do want you to treat me for whatever I'm in here for. Consent to treatment form. In some ways, I think people need to sign, not literally, but figuratively, a consent to spiritual treatment form. If you're going to give them spiritual advice, they almost need to consent to it. And do you, do you know what it's called when somebody, you give somebody something that they don't consent to? It's called abuse, everybody. It's called abuse. Okay? So if you have somebody going through that, I really think you, you can't force them to think about it. You can't, you can't keep harping them, nagging them. You should be in church. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. No, you, you can't shoot on somebody to get them back on the path. That's not how this works. You can offer. So here's what I, what I have taken to doing more. Somebody's really struggling with something. I will say, hey, I've had some of those same questions. Can I tell you what helped me? I don't have all the answers, but let me, can I t share with you? And if they say no, okay, this is important. If you actually ask for consent and they say no, you definitely can't offer it anyway. 
You don't need any consent to pray. You can pray, and we need to, we need to really explore as, as people of God the power of prayer. But if somebody doesn't want to talk to you about something, you've got to respect that. I really think you've got to respect that. And actually, if you start to respect that, you start to respect some of their boundaries on that, they're more likely to talk to you, not less. Everybody see that? You can always force them. It's not going to work. I remember uh, one of my kids in youth group one, one time told me, they said, I'm not sure I believe in God. I said, tell me about the God you don't believe in. I'm pretty sure I don't believe in that God either. See, I invited them to keep speaking, not me to tell them what was wrong. I invited them to keep speaking. And um, that's different. you got to invite, but you cannot force. I just don't think it actually has the, uh, the reverse effect. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? If, you, if my parents had tried to force me to go to church and force me when I'm in college, then I, it would not have worked well for me. You got to respect. You got to respect. You got to pray. You got to continue to offer, but you got to be careful when you do. And again, just a warning if they say no, you got to respect it. You can't keep jabbing the I'm praying. You don't have to tell them you're praying for them, everybody. Just keep praying for them. Okay, you don't have to keep jabbing it in there. Just let it be. Now, a word if you're raising kids, okay? Because this is really popular. I'm watching a lot of my friends who are raising kids. Um, a lot of grandparents who are doing this too, where they felt kind of, they had to go through all this with the church, and then they're trying to not force their kids to believe stuff, right? We're not going to force our kids to go to church. We're not going to force our kids to believe this. Well, you don't want to force your, like at some point your kid needs to grow up. But also when your kid's five, right, they think they're a ninja. You don't let them have the spiritual decision-making in their life, okay? My, my advice, if you're a parent or a grandparent, what, is the, what does the Bible say? Train up a child in the way they should go. Okay? Give them a faith to deconstruct. That's the best thing you can actually do for them. And then as they get older, let them wrestle with it. Actually, it's much better if they're allowed to wrestle with it with you instead of hiding it from you, right? So you got questions as they get older? Okay, let's talk about those. Make it a safe place where I've given you a faith. Now you're going to question it. Okay, let's do that together. Um, I'm watching too many of my friends that are like, totally hands off with their kids spiritually, and I just don't get it. You're not doing your kids any favor being totally hands off. Give them a faith to declutter later, right? That's part of the process. Part of the process for all of us. What did you inherit in your faith? That's not good, and you need to get rid of it, right? What do you, what do you need to change your mind about? What do you need to be thinking about? Or what did you leave behind at some point you need to go back and pick up? This is part of spiritual maturity here. So we're trying to hold this intention. I think decluttering is natural. It's important. It's something the church should participate in. On the other hand, it's happening in some very unhealthy ways in our culture right now. And the future of the church, the future of the church depends on our ability to wrestle with this thing. Because a lot of people are going through it. Our world needs churches to be places that don't shy away from doubt, but actually help people experience God in their path. That was my story. That is so many people's stories, and we need to be that kind of place. So, if you want to talk about stuff, my door is always open. My email is open most of the time. And uh, I'd love to talk about your doubts, your questions, the things you're going through with, with your family and where some of these things wrestle with for you. We need to be that kind of place for each other. 
But part of the joy of being the church is that we come back together once a week to remind ourselves that I, I may have had a struggling week and I may have doubted, but I come back here to sort of be reminded, oh yeah, I'm not alone and there's a bigger story going on. One of my favorite hymns to express that, the, the beauty of us coming together, is this next hymn, Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance has a way of, I think, capturing, okay, beyond my doubts, there's this assurance that goes beyond my head of something I can sense, that this is my story. So let's sing Blessed Assurance together. <laughs> 